most of my politics, honest to goodness, I think comes from people who should be famous, but hardly anyone in the country knows their name. We persisted. <laughs> and I think that true persistence isn't necessarily pushy, but it can be, but it's more like just not willing to give up. It's way different than stubbornness. It's more just like, this is what we're going to do. You're listening to Quoted, the question of the day podcast. I am Rebecca Smith. This is where we ask one question and then see where the conversation goes. In this episode, we're talking about persistence. The difference between things working out and the things not working out is um, it's such a fine line. Looking more at what it is that you believe about the situation than about um, what other people think. I think that's like one of the keys to persistence. And I think that's what the Kucinich campaign was about, was that we believed in what we were doing and we didn't care what anybody else thought. So it all worked out just as it should in the end. When you ran and got your microphone, I was talking about um, how I had gotten a rejection letter uh, back when I was a young single mother. The big thing was the housing. It was one of those government programs that was meant to like help poor, helpless single mothers figure out how, what they wanted to do with their life. You got career counseling and support and all that stuff, but I didn't need any of that because I was already on track. I knew what I was doing, and I had already applied to the University of Minnesota nursing program, so I was doing sciences and all sorts of classes that required a lot of studying. So I would get home from work at 11 o'clock at night and study until 2 in the morning and get up at 6 and get my kid ready for school. And then I would go to classes and then I would go to work at 3. And then I would get him and I'd take him home. And so when they saw me, I was just a total basket case. <laughs> they had just seen me when I was operating on three hours of sleep for like two weeks straight. <laughs> and they told me that I was um, disorganized, scattered, and a poor candidate for ever being successful. It was getting dark, and I rose up from my stupor of just crying and having this all-out temper tantrum. And, and then I realized that they were wrong. I was working full-time, going to school, didn't own a car, raising a kid, and had a pretty high GPA for somebody who hadn't finished much past ninth grade. And I 
was doing all this stuff. I didn't even own a car at the time. I had to bus everywhere. They obviously hadn't looked at any of that. They just saw me in front of them, sleep-deprived, babbling on about all my dental problems, which I did, and they just probably thought, this lady's a raving lunatic, and I can come off like that sometimes. But for the first time in my life, I remember realizing that these people had it totally wrong. You can't be scattered and disorganized (laughs) and pull that kind of lifestyle off for a long time and actually be successful at it. I mean, there was just no way that you could look at what I was doing and not go, they were wrong. I mean, I knew they were wrong about me. So that's what I think of persistence. I think it's really um, the willingness to believe and to follow your heart on things and listen to your heart more than you listen to external or the voices that tell you that you're wrong or that this is impossible. So much is possible. That was my friend Faith, Ms. Kidder. I know Faith from the Minnesota for Kucinich campaign. Well, it was right after Wellstone died that I found out about Dennis Kucinich. It felt like an extension of... We all do better when we all do better. We all do better when we all do better. To me, the definition of community is we all do better when we all do better. Whatever happened to community? The night that Dennis Kucinich got 1% of the Democratic caucus in Iowa, I was totally devastated. And I thought, you know, I, I think we're done. And the next night we had a meeting here in Minneapolis, so I drove back from Iowa. And I pulled into the Hmong Family Center where we used to have our meetings. And there, was, <laughs> there wasn't a parking space. And I thought, I wonder what's going on there tonight. <laughs> oh my gosh, talk about persistence. This is like amazing. It was the largest meeting that we had ever had. And everybody <laughs> said, we're not done yet. <laughs> We don't want to give this up. If you like a good coincidence like I do, you're going to find plenty of them here. I'll try to point them out as we go along, starting with the late senator from Minnesota, Paul Wellstone. There was a memorial garden that was there commemorating Paul Wellstone, who did his graduate and Ph.D. work at University of North Carolina. So we were struck by that as we were walking by and did see a little plaque right next to that garden that commemorated both him and his wife, Sheila. You talk about about uh, connections between the two places. Um, John Bewin, who we were talking about earlier, grew up in Minnesota. Rachel Seidelman, who runs the Southern Oral History Program down there, spent... It's not Seidelman, it's Seidman. I think you're right. Okay, uh, my apologies. It's Rachel Seidman. Um, Rachel Seidman, who runs the Southern Oral History Program, spent, I believe, like 12 years in Minnesota. So it's kind of interesting. We kept on running into these various Minnesota connections while we were in North Carolina. I was in the bedroom ironing some shirts for Brian 
and listening to some interviews from the oral history collection at the University of North Carolina. And my ears perked up when I heard somebody say, the most, the most public, building public building in the state of Arkansas, in the state of Arkansas that's owned by the public was, was now, now a private, a private club. club. The woman's voice I heard was that of Arlene Dunn, who was talking about her experience as a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. She was explaining how after the Civil Rights Bill passed in 1964, some restaurants tried to get around the Public Accommodations Act by claiming to be a private club. As such, businesses would be exempt from the new law that said that service could not be denied based on race, color, religion, or national origin. In the following piece, Dunn and her political cohort Nancy Stoller talk about how the cafeteria at the state capitol in Arkansas tried a similar stunt. I call the piece 1964 Do Something. So as you're dealing with these oral history tapes, how did you deal with some of the concerns around the various quality? Because I'm understanding from the way you were working with them, some of them. NAACP had already challenged the segregation and the Public Accommodations Act. The cafeteria in the basement of the Capitol was segregated. The most public building in the state of Arkansas that's owned by the public was now a private club. That was their way of that was their getting way of the, the getting law. around the, but it was the just new law. languishing in court. Nothing was happening. Nothing was happening. In nineteen sixty four the Civil Rights Bill or the Public Accommodations Bill was passed. And that went into effect on January first of nineteen sixty five. On January first, nineteen sixty five, or probably starting in December, lots of restaurants put up signs and became suddenly became private clubs. Do something. Like many Capitol buildings the, the basement, basement is, is this very large open rotunda with a lot of marble and there was this quite narrow hallway to enter the cafeteria. We were walking down the rotunda and then we turned the corner to go in and uh, the guard stood up immediately and said, well, you can't eat here. This is a private club. He said, well, we just ate here yesterday. Don't you remember us? And he was, of course, very flustered, and he was an old guy and probably a retired cop. I don't know what he was, but he was, was quite flustered by this whole situation. Finally, the manager came out and started to try to reason with us. The Secretary of State actually came down to talk to us. He's trying to tell us that, you know, that they don't really own this cafeteria, that there's some company that's leasing this piece of property and that we should talk to them. And they thought that we would just turn around and leave. And, and we did not. We can't just let them get away with this. So we recruited more people. We came back the second day. In the meantime, you know, we came at about 1130 and now now people are starting to come down and really want me. And some people, the first few people that came down started to pull out their, their, their driver's license or their business card or something saying, I'm a member, I'm a member. <laughs> and, and they let a few people in. But then they just just stopped the whole thing because it was clear that we were not going to leave. Then they closed the doors to the cafeteria, which were glass doors, so we could see through what was happening in there. As the Secretary of State and the manager, they're all trying to talk us out of just walking. They're trying to push us back a little bit, and we're just not going anywhere. We see a line of Arkansas State Police behind 
the doors. Next thing we knew, these state troopers come down the stairs and start beating the shit out of us and dragging well, us up many the of us steps and oh, okay, throwing us step out. We'll be arrested and onto the steps of the Capitol. You know, we were all expecting to be arrested. This is, you know, what what we're expecting to happen. But instead, what happened is that they came out and they started pushing and shoving us uh, out of the corridor shoving us to the floor, beating us with billy clubs, pretty brutal with us. They were just trying to get us out. They kept pushing us all the way down this top, this marble floor, down to the marble staircase. When we got that far, we did leave, so we left. Some people were hurt enough to have to no, go to the hospital. we had to keep going back. Yeah. It was kind of scary. So we went back the next day with more people, maybe 20, 25 people. They tell us to leave. You're going to be dispersed you know, if you don't you really, you really can't come in here. You know you can't come in here. So try to be reasonable and leave. And we said, we're just not. And on the third day, uh, they were even more prepared. Um, they had uh, tear gas canisters with them. This is kind of like uh, taking a whole double packet of uh, hot mustard in a Chinese restaurant and just swallowing it. It's, it's really painful and very uncomfortable. By the end of the week, they closed the cafeteria. Um, they would rather close the cafeteria than serve people of color. That was the message there. So uh, we decided to sue the state and said you can't close this cafeteria and you can't deny people to eat in this cafeteria. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund prosecuted the case for us. Both Nancy and I testified. Uh, we got accused of being outside agitators. Nancy was from Virginia and she pulled out her quite southern accent to say where she was from. <laughs> and that kind of threw them. Eventually the, the, the cafeteria is opened again. If it hadn't been for the direct action, it wouldn't have happened. It would have just languished and languished and languished because somebody had to push it. In 1979, I was working for a little regional airline in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I needed to go to talk to the director of economic development for the state. We met for a little while, and he says, well, why don't we go have some lunch? And we went over to the cafeteria in the basement of the Capitol building. <laughs> Even by 1979, black people and white people were eating at the same table and talking to each other. So that was one of three pieces that I made for the Sonic South event held by the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina. The idea was to put together something using interviews from their oral history archives. The theme was persistence, and the works were supposed to feature women's voices. If you happen to be reading the newsletter, you know that Brian and I made the trip to Chapel Hill to attend the Sonic South listening session where two of my pieces were played. Uh, When was it, Brian? May of this year, 2018. I never imagined that we would actually go down there for the event, but... Yeah, I thought, let's go. So it was fun to walk around campus. One of the pieces had to deal with a worker strike that had happened at the campus in the late 60s. So it made it kind of fun when we were wandering around in those spaces and in those buildings. And you were saying, oh yeah, this is the building where they used to go into, but you know... It sort of gave those places a sense of meaning that they wouldn't have had had you not delved into those archives and really got to know a lot about what had gone on and had those people's voices in your head and all of that. So you're talking about the cafeteria worker strike in 19, I think it's 68. We're, let's see, it's 2018. It's been 50 years. The Pine Room that a lot of those people serviced is now gone. It was in the basement of this building, which has now been turned into offices. 
And we were even kind of asking a couple of people about it who were down there, and they didn't really have much recollection of any of it. It's so funny, too, because I'm like, what? How can you not know? I was really expecting there to be a plaque, some stone, something that commemorated it. And maybe there's something, but I I did not see anything that said Pine Room. And we did look for it. We also got to see Manning Hall, which is where the Black Students Movement was set up. And the strikers would go, it was right across the way from the cafeteria, the, the, the women... Um, mainly women, I think, who worked in the cafeteria would meet with the um, with the black students that were supporting the strike. So what we're going to hear in this next piece that I called Ms. Smith and Ms. Brooks of the Pine Room is the buildup to the strike. We're first going to hear from Elizabeth Brooks, followed by Mary Smith. The audio recording for her was a little bit rough, but I kind of like to work with what's given. And uh, when you're working with oral history, sometimes the quality of the tape isn't quite as good as you might have hoped. So in a couple of cases, I did insert my voice to provide some clarity. I hope that's not too distracting. We also very briefly hear from Mr. Ashley Davis, So there are three people in this piece, although I did use two different interviews that were done with Ms. Brooks. With that, here's part one. I have nine children. I had gone to work because my baby had started kindergarten and all the children was in school. So that really was my first real job. I was cooking. On my application, I was listed as a dishwasher. It was paying me as a dishwasher, but I was cooking every day a meal for the night. It started just a mom say, Mary Smith, Esther Jeffers, Elsie Davis, Sarah Parker, and myself. We were the second shift that worked in the pine room. Guys who just got in prison and stuff are hired as managers. And they don't know anything. Some of them have told me, well, Mary, what is that? Be something just simple as all. Cheese raviolis, he wouldn't even know what it is. Miss Smith, I think, was ordering stuff. She was generally doing managing. What was happening was these ladies and all were managing the cafeteria system. But none of them were made managers. Mary was like a mother to the group in the pine room. She um, had been employed there longer than any of us. And they were making people do all kinds of stuff. Like, they'd make you come to work and work four hours in the morning, say, from 6 to 10. Split your day, and you go to work back. Go to work from two to six. Now that's an eight-hour day, sure. But what do you do from ten to two? There were so many of the workers there that had been there two and three years and hadn't been on permanent payroll. When I told them that I was going to see him about getting on permanent payroll, they were standing down there shaking. They said, "You gonna get fired. You don't go up them steps and mess with Mr. Prillen." Oh, they were just, you know beside their sales about it. We put all our workers on permanent payroll. Oh, he just done the work. Then as we um, got a little more persistent, he began to make promises. Like even the management at that time and and the way we've been treated, I still respected and liked them, but I was worried, oh, I just hate to have to say this about this person or that, and I worried about that a lot. I just... uh, I always ask questions and try to find out why 
I had to have an answer. The fine of one of the employees for no reason at all. Doris Ann Stevens, she was from Durham. She refused to uh, lift heavy trays of dishes to the uh, conveyor belt, which was real high. None of us had any intentions of lifting those trays of dishes. Each week, our checks were being shortened, and uh, nothing had been done about it. Sometimes they'd be short of $13, $14, and, you know, they would just give them any kind of answer. You've, You've got, got enough, enough to, to get, get drunk, drunk on. on. You know, they would just pass it off, everything that you tried to talk to them about. We first went to our supervisor, and he told us that it was coming from payroll department. We made several individual visits uh, to the payroll department. They kind of, you know, made you feel real low, just like, you know, you, you really just didn't know what you were talking about or what you were doing. He wrote down and promised that we would hear something in a while, and we never hear anything from there. We, we didn't know, know anything about unions anything. then. Preston Dobbins advised us to go as a group and ask for a meeting as a group. We were getting a little fed up and we were getting a little angry too. He met me around there at the time clock and he pointed his finger in my face and he told me, he says, I'm not going to ever ask you to do anything else. From now on, I'm going to tell you to do it. We started to get together. The black students had a place in Manning Hall waiting. They helped us get our list of grievances back together. It may have been about three to 400 students. They took trays as they come in, and they just began to bang on the counter. Mr. White was the only manager or supervisor in the building, and it almost frightened him to death. <laughs> he looked at us, and he said, what in the world is going on? So somebody says, we on strike. And he, um, he says, Mary Smith, Mary? Come back here to the office. I want to talk to you. So I told him that you can't talk to Mary in the office. You'll have to talk to all of us. He uh, called in Mr. Prilliman, who is the head director. He has a real heavy voice, and I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, so many employees was frightened by him. So he came in there, and he yelled out, Mary Smith, Mary Smith, I want to speak to you. I told him, I said, well, I'm sorry you can't speak to Mary Smith. You have to speak to the group. Mary, he called again, so then she told him, she said, Mr. Prilliman, we are a group now, and so you have to talk to all of us. So he turned around, and he called uh, Branch from Raleigh. Branch finally um, came in, and he, well, he said, well, what do you all want? So we told him, we said, we want a meeting. And uh, so he says, uh, well, we'll have a meeting. Some proof. Proof of what? Read, read that. Just read a little bit of that. Okay. He seemed poised to begin an academic career that would focus on finding practical solutions to policy problems. Yet Wellstone was hardly pursuing a conventional path on the road to becoming a professor. He was teaching courses to undergraduates and frequently involved them in protests. It was natural to wonder whether Paul Wellstone would have been involved. And sure enough, I found this in a book online. It's called Paul Wellstone, The Life of a Passionate Progressive by uh, Bill Loffy, or Lofi, L-O-F-Y. I love this book. This book is a wonderful book. It excited me to read it from cover to cover. Um, I think Bill has a wonderful voice as a writer. 
In addition, Wellstone became increasingly involved in local organizing drives, including a volatile strike involving the university's cafeteria workers. Since childhood, Wellstone had witnessed the stigmatization facing his mother and other cafeteria workers, and when the workers at Lenora Hall, UNC's main dining hall, went on strike after a wage dispute, he had an opportunity to stand up for their rights. At first, he tried to organize a boycott of the hall. When that effort failed, he tried a Saul Alinsky tactic. There was a rule that said you had to leave the cafeteria, Wellstone later recalled, so we would take our sweet time going through the line, sit at the tables, and just block the place up. Cool. Senator Wellstone. My father, a Jewish immigrant from Ukraine who fled persecution from Russia and um, really emphasized to me the importance of human rights. And my mother, Mincha Danishevsky, was a cafeteria worker. We didn't have that much money. So from her, it was sort of the whole focus on people who struggle to make ends meet and the importance of, of, of trying to be there with, with uh, low and moderate income and working people. Um, that was really important. And then the second thing would, it, would be uh, being a student at the University of North Carolina exactly the right time with the explosion of the civil rights movement and, and then the anti-poverty work and then the anti-Vietnam War movement. All of that was my, if you will, baptism to, uh, to uh, grassroots activism and, and, to, and to grassroots leadership. Elizabeth Brooks. There were lots of white supporters, and uh, and really, I can't supply you with uh, names because I have forgotten. There were so many that was real active, and they worked real close with the black students also. Uh, one thing, um, they didn't jump in and try to make decisions. Uh, they offered their help. And they let us decide in what way that we could use it or need it. And uh, we, we appreciated this. And uh, we, did, we had lots of the white students that were real active. And uh, professors, too. Before I became a United States Senator, it was 20 years in Minnesota of teaching and community organizing. I did a lot of community organizing. And through the community organizing work, I have seen the capacity of regular people, ordinary citizens, which I mean in a positive way, to be their own leaders. Bill Lofi. At this time, the civil rights movement is exploding all around him. And uh, Wellston was learning the, tr the, the tricks of the organizing trade. He was learning about direct action and, and justice issues. Well, he wasn't accepted into the University of North Carolina's PhD program. His GRE scores were abysmal. It was later turned out that he had a learning disability that prevented him from testing well. Uh, but see, now, for Wellstone, this was a clear case of injustice. And it was an opportunity for him to apply the lessons that he had been learning and these justice struggles he had been watching to his own life. So he staged a sit-in. That was the only logical thing for him to do. He felt this was just unjust, and he was going to stage a sit-in in the dean's office. And that's exactly what he did. The dean ended up reversing uh, his decision, let Wellstone in. He finished his PhD um, at the age of 24 years old. So we just heard two pieces that touched on cafeterias. There was the segregated cafeteria post-Civil Rights Act at the Arkansas State Capitol. And then there was the cafeteria workers' strike at UNC. And when Leonida Inge from North Carolina Public Radio asked me about my interest in the topic, I'm afraid I didn't have a very smart answer. It was just a coincidence. Thank you. 
As for Wellstone's mother having been a cafeteria worker, I wanted to say that it was also a notable twist of fate, but it's probably more accurate to say that it was an influence. Next up is part two of Ms. Smith and Ms. Brooks of the Pine Room. In part one, we heard about the buildup to the cafeteria workers' strike. Basically, they were not getting paid what they were supposed to be getting paid. They weren't getting the benefits they were supposed to be getting. After so many days, they should have been put on permanent payroll, and they never were. Years would go by, and nobody was on permanent payroll. And, of course, they were also shorting their checks and all of this stuff. What happens in this story is people are just kind of plugging along like this, and then they hire Elizabeth Brooks, who, uh, you know, who's a mother of nine. Her last kid is finally in school, so she takes a job. But the thing is, Brooks is not the sort to just uh, suck it up. I have been raised that, you know, you do what you say. Um, and my father was just real strict. And if he promised you anything or he was supposed to do it, he'd done it. And if uh, someone... Uh, promised him something he just didn't stop till he got it or he would find out why and I think maybe some of this came from there everybody was quite nervous about her taking uh, taking a stand they were afraid she was going to get fired uh, they were afraid they were going to get fired after a little bit of organizing learning about unions getting some support from the black student movement as well as as other other students, uh, they they finally got management to agree to a meeting. Part two begins with a list of their demands. The fine off Prilliman, the 20 cents pay raise, the rehire of Darcy and Stevens. At the same time, we wanted job descriptions, and job titles. We asked to have name pins because uh, supervisors and managers just, you know, walk in and blast out your name all over the place, Elizabeth, Elster, what may. So we asked for name tags, because if we had to call them Mr. Perlman, then we would like to be called Mrs. Brooks or Ms. Smith or, you know, whoever. We also um, wanted our back time pay. I just wanted somebody to know it was serious. To me, it was really serious. Yeah. Well, at the time, we didn't actually call it a strike. We had planned it for just that one day. We thought that would make them stop and listen to us. We had uh, workers that had been there 20 and 25 years. They just thought what we were doing was crazy, and we were, you know, going to lose our jobs. They just weren't going to, you know, have any parts of it. We would see some of the black students each day and uh, they would keep encouraging us. You know, don't back down, stick to it. They were polishing shoes. Uh, they were doing just, just anything that come along to raise money. We had high school students that came over and had rallies. We had other college students from other colleges to come over. There were several just housewives with babies. The mothers would come out and pushing their babies in strollers and uh, carrying the babies on their backs and, uh, and walking that picket line. And we had asked for the whole university to go on strike. We would just ask for anything like it was asking for a drink of water. <laughs> 
And, uh, of course, you know, the black students was uh, right there encouraging us. The next day, um, classes began to form out in the open, just one right after the other. We didn't see any reason for uh, National Guards there. So this kind of showed us just the type of people that we were dealing with. You know, it was just really frightening to see all those guns, but the Chapel Hill policemen, they even clicked those guns one night. They were standing on top of cars. We was afraid, but we was determined to go on. The university ended up paying $180,000 in back down pay. This is really what uh, turned on the other uh, workers that did not participate in the strike. They came to us and apologized and uh, told us that if you ever decide to do anything else, we're going to be with you because they are the people that got the 8 and 9 and 12 and $1,300. And we didn't really get that much of it. This settled the... Uh the, the strike, they would make a uh, dollar and eighty cents an hour, which would become minimum wage for the people who worked in the cafeteria. Then the university didn't have the food service that long after. We really had it hard ever since. Sometimes, Sometimes I wonder, wonder is, is it, it worse? worse? Things were just going to work out dandy. But soon after Saga Food Company came in, when they came in, they came in laying off people. I was offered, uh, I think it was $4 an hour to talk with the other group and, uh, and, and you know, make sure that no one thought about striking. I've been through some hard times since that strike here, you know, mm -hmm. to stay here. They really uh, put the pressure on me. They shifted me around from place to place. They changed my schedule, which I was working uh, that second shift because it benefited my family the best. And uh, they knew this. They had ways of finding out. I don't know if they were trying to, you know, get rid of me or what. They had their eyes on me when they came there, on Marysmere. Different students and whatever would come in, and they would, you know, question, how's it going, you know, are you having any problems with this company and this type of thing. And they definitely didn't like me. They didn't like, I don't want you talking to nobody on my time. And he meant that. I mean, he was just, he just, I am not going to have it. But I did have an hour for lunch. And I just run right across <laughs> over to the student union. And I talked that whole hour. <laughs> and the next day would be a whole write up in the paper. <laughs> and he would have me in the office. <laughs> I am not going to tolerate this. I am simply not going to tolerate this. Elizabeth Brooks, she was fired. Now, She's been selling Amway. I have been raised that you do what you say. So what did you think of Chapel Hill? I enjoyed it. It's a very nice old campus. We kind of toured the older part of it. But it's very lovely, very picturesque. Uh, Silent Sam was still up at the time, and it was only up probably a couple of more months after we were there. It is a statue that commemorates the University of North Carolina students who fought in the Civil War. And people clearly, for reasons perfectly understandable, find it insulting to have this monument remain. And it is, by the way, the thing that's important to note about it, it is at the central part of campus. So when you're first entering that end of campus, it's the first thing you see. So I think that that's the other thing that kind of played into the fact that people were upset about it. And within a couple of months, it was taken down.
forcefully by protesters. <laughs> right. The first time I had ever heard about Silent Sam was on the podcast Press Record, where they use oral history clips, and uh, it's produced by the Southern Oral History Program. So I would check that out uh, at S at S O okay S O H P dot org. Right. So yes, we saw Silent Sam before it was taken down. So there were a lot of sidewalk messages around campus. So you could tell something was going something was going on. The change in our country comes from the grassroots, and the most important thing is that people become their own leaders, speak for themselves, advocate for themselves. I think that's the best of leadership development. In the summer of 2002, the big issue was not Iraq. The big issue was Enron. Um, and the Democrats were really uh, feeling good about this, the way the campaign was going. And for Paul Wellstone, boy, there is no better topic to be, to be running on than the issue of corporate accountability, because he was one of the most outspoken uh, watchdogs on that issue, and so the, t the actual the terms of the campaign were very much on, on Democrats' favor. Um, but of course, in the lead up to the first anniversary of 9/11, uh, the Republicans in the administration went on the offensive. I mean, this was when Chief of Staff Andrew Card said, in terms of rolling out the uh, the Iraq War resolution, the Iraq War uh, uh, possibility, they didn't talk much about it in August, and the reason was that. From a, and this is a quote, from a marketing perspective, you don't roll out a new product in August. Um, so they waited and rolled out their new product um, shortly after Labor Day. And the, they went on the offensive, both internationally and domestically. And Democrats were on the run. And a lot of people were worried that Wellstone was, uh, the Wellstone's campaign, unless he took a position in favor of the resolution, that, he was, that his campaign was in peril. The attacks began taking a toll. In September, for the first time in the campaign, Wellstone's internal polls showed him trailing his challenger, Norm Coleman, who was, this, who was the mayor of St. Paul. And he would soon have to take a risky vote on the, on the resolution. As the vote on the resolution approached, every Democratic candidate in the half dozen closest races for Senate announced his support for the measure. And political observers speculated that Wellstone's career was in peril. One top Democratic strategist, this is someone with the DNC, was so convinced that the vote would cost Wellstone the election that he wrote Wellstone's campaign manager an angry email. Now keep in mind, this is from someone from the National Party, and they're in, re responsible for doling out money to the various different campaigns. And here's what he said. He said, it makes me almost physically ill to even contemplate spending money on a candidate who de decides to commit suicide, however principled and otherwise defensible. As Wellstone said, he knew the potential consequences of his decision, and he acknowledged that he would have preferred to be dealing with other issues. With five weeks to go at the end of 12 years in the Senate, of course I wonder what the effect will be, he told a reporter. To me, this is the personally and intellectually honest decision, and that's the one I should make. And I don't really think that I have any other choice but to make it. Because how could you do otherwise? It's a life and death question, and I'm not making any decision that I don't believe in. When asked how he felt after making his announcement, Wellstone said simply, my soul is resting. Now Paul Wellstone's soul would not be resting if he saw 
what was going on in, in American politics and in our world right now. And I think if there was ever a time that Wellstone supporters needed to hear one of his rowdy speeches and needed to be brought, like I used to be when I was watching him, brought to their tiptoes at the end, going out and wanting to know how they can take action, that time is now. Good evening, I'm we're not locked in to these conditions that degrade the environment and jeopardize the future of our children. Homegrown economies about self-reliant, self-sufficient communities. Move into the 21st century. And to discuss with the American people the, the serious matters facing our country and the world. Entrainment which attuned people about how to keep capital in communities, about how to grow and promote small businesses. We have received a cautionary note, my friends, with the attack on Iraq, because that was about oil, pure and simple. Let's tell the truth about this. If Iraq had no oil, we wouldn't have attacked Iraq. And I contend that the kind of thinking which is resistant towards developing new energy technologies, is old thinking. We ought to make that a huge deal. We have to realize that our misguided policies have put us on a path of destruction. This is a country which has, fortunately, no absence of solutions. What we have, however, is an absence of political will. This energy bill that's coming over from the House, it really is outrageous. Destruction of our integrity as a nation, destruction of other people, destruction of our planet, because war itself is a form of ecocide and the principles which animate this particular war is a corruption of the American heart. Outrageous. What's emerging is a new type of thinking that views sustainability as profitable, that understands that profits go up the smokestack and go out. If you'll form a community energy council, which is broadly representative of people in the community, we could reduce the bill, we could reduce your energy bill for 10% in the first year. Wind power for our communities and solar power for our communities, not for corporations, for our communities. Moving to the 21st century, we want to help create businesses which are dedicated to sustainability because that's where the money's going to be made. We have incredible inventive genius in this country. But how much of it goes to weapons production? I mean, think about it. The same genius which is currently dedicated to weapons production, to putting weapons in space, to creating more firepower, to creating more kill potential. What if instead we began to change the consciousness of this country towards real sustainability, sustaining human life, sustaining human health, sustaining communities, incentivizing renewable energies, providing the possibility of real investments in solar and hydrogen, in wind, in all of those technologies that we already know about, and in creating new energy technologies we don't even know about. We ought to make this a populist issue. We ought to make this an Enron issue. We ought to make this an issue of who the hell framed this bill who was there at the table? So far, they don't want us to know. And what happened to the vast majority of people? We ought to hammer away at The National Aeronautics and Space Administration has had marvelous success in moving forward with creating the potential to move human destiny further and further out into the universe. How much so are we capable? 
of moving human destiny along on this planet by dedicating our technologies towards new energy production. We ought to say that people should be sick and tired of a, of a few of these conglomerates making all of this money, basically taking over the policy, which is disrespectful of our families, disrespectful of our communities, disrespectful of our environment, disrespectful of jobs, disrespectful in terms of small businesses having a shake. This campaign calls for a phase out of nuclear power, phase out of fossil fuels, and a movement towards alternative energy in this country. We ought to turn the whole thing upside down or right side up, depending upon your point of view. Raise a lot of hell about it. Don't let it be just some policy discussion. Make it real. Sustainability equals peace. We have to understand that the American people... This thing is over for Bush. It is over for him. He doesn't know it tonight. But it is over. It is so over. The irony, of course, is that had John Kerry taken the same position that Paul Wellstone had in 2002, he would have had far less difficulty in making a credible case against the Bush administration um, on, on the issue of the war. In fact, I think that in many ways the 2004 election was defined by John Kerry's unwillingness to take a politically principled stand on the war. My name is Jonathan. I live in uh, New England, Massachusetts. I'm an assistant at a hospital in Boston, so I'm a constituent of John Kerry. from Ohio, and I'm a homemaker. Calling from Honolulu, Hawaii. Northern California. I'm And I'm an organic farmer. Uh, I live in Ashland, Oregon. Thomas. Paula. I am 46 years old, and I'm from southeastern Minnesota. Bloomington, Minnesota. Anchorage, Alaska. Fargo, North Dakota. I would like to see Senator Kerry distinguish himself. I would himself. like to see John Kerry distinguish himself from George Bush. Bush. Iraq. I want the Patriot Act repealed. Talk about when we're going to exit Iraq, how we're going to exit Iraq. U.S. out of Iraq. Stop trying to take over Iraqi assets. My main concern is the national debt. I think that the military expenditures are running up the national debt to astronomical amounts and to hold uh, the military and the Pentagon accountable. I want this insanity in Iraq to stop and no more empire building. Let us have a feeling of security that is not wallowing in fear. How can we stop terrorists from feeling the way they do towards America as opposed to swatting down one by one with bombs? Become a peace candidate. My positive feelings about Senator Kerry came from his anti-war activity following Vietnam. In opposition to President Bush's Immediately pull our troops out of Iraq. Bring in the United Nations. I would like John Kerry to take more of a peace stance and a long-term view of what kind of world we're creating. Bring in all the countries of the world. I want to get out of NAFTA and WTO, and I want universal health care. NAFTA and CAFTA and WTO, we need to get out of all of those immediately. Environmental friendly legislation. Turn the peacekeeping over to Arab countries. Taking a much more even-handed approach uh, towards the uh, uh, Israel-Palestine issue. There's a lot of um, discourage, discouragement because of his um, uh, not taking a proper stand in regards to all the soldiers being killed left and right and all the Iraqi uh, civilians dying. 
John Kerry uh, has uh, to really change his tune, um, if uh, certainly to get my vote. I literally know dozens of people who would love to vote for John Kerry, but are not ready to do that because he is not different enough from George Bush on the issues of national security, terrorism, and the handling of Iraq. Unless he makes a stand against Bush, I will be voting for Nader. And it's not the Bush administration way, and that's how Kerry and the Democrats can distinguish themselves, and we're waiting to find out. John is actually from Minnesota, and uh, he's now working at the Center for Documentary Studies in uh, North Carolina, and he does a podcast called Seen on Radio. I first encountered John B. when, where I work at Children's Hospitals and Clinics of Minnesota, Angela Kate Gepford, who is the chief of medical education, has been very interested in issues around race, inclusion, gender, and all of that. So December 2017, she brought in John Bewin to talk a little bit about what was going on in his podcast. Well, it turned out the competition that you were in had three judges, and one of the judges was John Bewin. I went over and introduced myself to him. He was kind of blown away at how small the world it was. Most of my politics, honest to goodness, I think comes from people who should be famous, but hardly anyone in the country knows their name. Mary Smith, Esther Jeffers, Elsie Davis, Sarah Parker, and myself. This was the, the center of the strike right there. It started with these ladies in the panel. Whatever happened to Faith? Within a day or two, I got my acceptance letter to the, the School of Nursing, which was an extremely competitive program. It was one of the highest-rated programs in the country at that time. I had a letter saying that I got accepted at the same time I was getting rejected for being a poor candidate for being successful. So, you know, whatever. I went the next day and told some people what happened. The people who had uh, supported me in applying for this program, people at the university, the people who had encouraged me to do it. The assistant mayor at that time was a woman by the name of Jan Hively, and they got me a meeting with her, and they had to rewrite the programs to get the Section 8 certificates that people hadn't claimed released to people on the waiting list, and they went and did that, and they got me into the program. Right around that same time, I applied for welfare because my son was having trouble in school. And I was told, oh, you can't, nobody gets welfare these days because, you know, it was just starting to, it was during the Reagan era and it was whatever. But they did have this program where you could go get your four-year degree, but you had to go see a counselor. So I went to see this guy and I told him the only thing that was standing in between me and my nursing degree was the fact that my son was having a hard time in school and he had been kept back a grade And I was having to choose between working and supporting him and going to school. And the guy said to me, and this is causing you a lot of stress. And I said, no, it's not. It's just, you know, kind of hard. And he said it to me about six times before I realized that he was trying to get me to say that it was causing me stress. So then I started crying and said, yes, yes, it is. And he stood up. He says, okay, come with me. And he gave me a whole stack of... Um, 
paperwork that I had to hand in every quarter with my grades. And he said, as long as you hand in your grades and you have good grades, we'll keep you in the program. So between that and my housing certificate, I was actually able to uh, live on my welfare grant and go to school and be able to have enough money to buy my son, you know, clothes and food and pay for my 30% of my rent. It just paid for everything. And then I didn't have to, I didn't have to struggle so hard trying to figure out what to do with him while I was in school for the most part. And it allowed me to support him better. Because um, before that I was working in the evenings and he was in daycare every evening that I was working. And then he was at my dad's during the weekend when I worked. I would take the five bus over to Chicago Avenue where I worked as a nursing assistant and I'd put my son on a bus on the 94 and my dad would pick him up in St. Paul. And that's how, I mean, People think it's crazy now that people would do that, but I know what it's like. I guess the good thing is I know what it's like to really be, like, scraping to put it together, and I totally understand it. Even though I'm pretty decidedly middle class, and I have a really, really good life, um, I try not to forget that it wasn't always like that and that it isn't easy for people. So I think it's about persistence. Persistence is important, but it's also about remembering that there's a lot of people with a really hard road to hoe, and I feel like, I don't know, there were so many times when it felt like the universe just opened up and things just worked out, like getting that certificate and getting on welfare and not having to work quite so hard so I could actually I don't know if I could have done it if I had to do it for five years that would have been really incredibly hard to work full-time and go through nursing school and raise my son so I feel really really grateful for all that I've gotten and I know this is about persistence but I think that's the other thing is um we don't do this alone. Housewives with babies, the mothers would come out and pushing their babies in strollers and uh, carrying the babies on their backs and uh, and walking that picket line. So I graduated in June and I bought my house in the end of October. And the Republican realtor who got me the program to get my house, he was like, Ronald Reagan would be so proud of you because you lifted yourself up by the bootstraps and I was no you know I didn't everybody who was alive in the United States and paying taxes between 1983 and 1988 thank you because you lifted me up and I think that's the other thing is that you can say it's persistence, but 
Persistence is holding a thought that something is possible, but it doesn't happen alone, and there's a lot of spirits that bring it all to happen. Another element of Wellstone's legacy was the imperative of finding joy in politics. You know, rare was the occasion when Wellstone was conflicted by indecision, and I, I think he delighted in that freedom. You know, he was someone who was sort of unbound by indecision. He didn't spend a lot of time sitting up at night wondering where he came down on the core issues and on his core beliefs. And I think he delighted in that freedom. And as, one, as many people have noted, Wellstone was really the prototypical happy warrior, like his hero Hubert Humphrey. He was someone who relished a political battle, but did it with a smile on his face and, as he used to put it, with a twinkle in his eye. And I think that if there's any legacy that Wellstone will leave behind, it's a legacy of integrity, uh, of persistence, yes, of passion, and I think not least of all, as Zach mentioned before, of hope. You have been listening to Quoted, the Question of the Day podcast. I am Rebecca Smith. Thanks to everyone who contributed to this episode. I do appreciate it. This is just one part of what I want to present to you. The other part you can find over at the website, questionpodcast.com, where you can find links to various articles and clips in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, take care.